Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Again, 12, 38, chapter 12, 38, verses, chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Hear now the word of God. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings. in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour a widow's house and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word. Praise thanks be to God. Thank you, Ryan. Great, okay. Um, one of the goals of my sabbatical this past summer was to get closer to my kids. And so in an effort to get closer to them, I made the mistake of going to Magic Mountain with them. Uh, the reason why I say mistake is because the last time I went to Magic Mountain was when I was 20 years old. Back then, my body loved roller coasters. 26 years later, I've realized that my body has changed a little bit. Now, what used to exhilarate me terrifies me. And this became painfully obvious on my daughter's favorite ride, which is called Crazanity. I should have judged by the name of the ride that this ride was not for me. It's the world's largest pendulum ride that swings as high as 170 feet in the air. It's this giant frisbee where everyone's sitting on the outside of the frisbee, and as it rotates, it swings back and forth. When you're at the end, it feels like you're going to get flung off. It was absolutely terrifying those five minutes of my life. When the ride ended, I found out that it was hard for me to ungrip the handlebars. I had to literally one by one unfurl each finger. Not only that, but as I walked away, I walked away like a cowboy. My legs were bow-legged. Why? Because I discovered that my thighs and my hips were clenched around the seat because I was so scared I was going to get flung off. Now, why do I share this embarrassing story? Well, oddly enough, it gets at the heart of what I want to talk to you about today. You see, what's terrifying about a roller coaster 
is that when you get onto the ride and when you lower the, the bar down, what you're ultimately doing is you're surrendering control. You're telling the operator, you're telling the machine, my life is in your hands because the moment I sit down is the moment I lose complete control. Now for some, giving up control is exhilarating. Just ask my kids. For others, it can be absolutely terrifying. And yet, The same can be said of our faith. When God invites us to come and follow him, what he's ultimately asking us to do is to give up control. What he's asking us to do is to relinquish control over our lives and let him lead. He bids us to come, deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. And for some people, surrendering control to God is terrifying, while for others, it can be exhilarating. Well, let me first give you a thumbnail sketch of what's going on in our passage. We're going to focus on the widow's sacrifice. But it's helpful for us to look at the verses that precede this passage because it's relevant. In verses 38 through 40, Jesus gives a scathing critique of the scribes. He criticizes them for their hypocrisy, something we talked about a couple weeks ago. He he talks about how the scribes use their piety, use their devotion, use their religion as a show, as a way to garner and and stroke their own egos. You see, for them, their devotion wasn't really aimed at God, but it was a means to a greater end. These scribes had an, an insatiable desire for people's applause, for people's admiration. And so they would use their religion as a way to uh, get people to praise them and esteem them, get people to give them the, the seat of honor in their homes. And Jesus was disgusted by this. At the same time, not only are they guilty of hypocrisy, but they're guilty of devouring widows' homes. Those are the words Jesus uses. What does he mean? Well, apparently, these scribes would leverage their standing in the church, their standing in the temple, to gain the trust of elderly widows. These widows obviously would say, surely you're a man of God. Surely you're looking out for my best interests. And as soon as they would gain the trust of these widows, they would then siphon off their savings siphon off their equity to the point where these widows are losing their property and their homes. This is blatant elder abuse. And I think you and I would agree that there are few things more despicable than taking advantage of frightened, frail, and gullible widows and doing this all in the name of God. And so it's out of this moral decay, this moral corruption that the widow steps into the light. 
The light of this widow shines all the more brilliantly when you contrast her act of devotion to the duplicitous acts of the scribes. What's going on? Well, Jesus is people watching here. He is sitting on a bench watching people bring their offerings to the temple treasury. And standing outside the uh, temple treasury were 13 receptacles used for people to deposit their offerings. You see, in the Old Testament, God commanded the Jews to give a tenth of their their, uh, oil, their their wine, their grain, and, and their herds and flocks. But for some people to make a pilgrimage to the temple to deposit their offering, their tithe, would be quite troublesome. Imagine traveling many miles with sheep and goats and and wine and grain. And so the Old Testament makes a provision that you could actually give the equivalent of your tithe in money. It's much easier to travel with cash. And so that's what we have going on here. People are depositing their tithes in the form of money. And as Jesus watches the wealthy donating large amounts of money, this widow catches his eye. The scripture reads that she deposited two small copper coins. Now, I don't think we can appreciate just how meager her donation was. You see, the words translated as copper coins is the Greek word lepta, which is plural for lepton. One lepton was one four hundredth of a shekel. One four hundredth of a shekel. It was, and you're probably thinking, well, what's a shekel? Well, it was one eighth of a penny is worth today. Actually, due to inflation, probably one sixteenth worth of a penny today. And she gives two leptons. The Bible tells us that she gave everything she had. Now, if you and I were her, we'd probably give God one lepton and keep the other for ourselves. After all, 50% is still quite a significant offering. But this widow gives everything. Now, before I talk about the significance of her actions, let me just say that the poverty of this widow serves as another indictment on the religious establishment. You see, the Old Testament made clear that God cares deeply for the widow. It makes numerous provisions for the religious leaders to care for the widow. It set up a biblical welfare system, so to speak. In fact, the very offerings that the temple received, a portion of that should have been distributed to the care of the widows. But the fact that this widow is destitute and has nothing but two leptons demonstrates that the religious leaders failed to do their duty. They failed to care for the poor. And what makes matters worse is that instead of providing for them, they're actually taking advantage of them. And so when you zoom out of our passage, what you find is Immediately before a scathing rebuke of the scribes, 
Then you have the widow's offering. And then immediately after, in chapter 13, Jesus pronounces judgment upon the temple of Israel. He pronounces a, a chapter-long woe of destruction. And so you could see how the widow's offering fits. Jesus sees the destitution of this widow, and it's as if Jesus says, this is the last straw. I've had it. You have failed to care for those that I love. You have failed to convey my compassion. You have failed to uphold justice. Judgment is in your future, Israel. The temple will be destroyed. And I share this in order to remind us of how God cares deeply for the poor, which explains why the church historically has always been on the front lines of serving those who are on the margins. This is why numerous hospitals across the world are Christian why numerous schools were founded by Christians, why numerous homeless shelters are operated by Christians. And so at New Life, we take our duty to care for the marginalized seriously. As Pastor Lewis mentioned, we have the Families Forward opportunity. Also on December 17th, we have our outreach to the homeless community through Breakfast at the Crossing. Now going back to our passage what does Jesus say about this widow? Well, after seeing her deposit her two measly leptons, Jesus calls his disciples and uses her as a teaching opportunity. He says in verse 43, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. I can imagine the look of surprise on the disciples' faces. Surely there were some wealthy people depositing large wads of cash there. Jesus, are you telling me these two leptons are worth more than anything uh, else that people have given? Your math doesn't make sense. Kent Hughes describes this scene more eloquently he writes this, Jesus held in his hands the balanced scales of eternity. On one side, he emptied all the contents of the 13 trumpets, the shekels, the, the denarii, the heavy gold and silver. On the other side, he placed the two minuscule copper coins and the massive load of the rich gave way to the eternal weight of the widow's tiny offerings. Why? Why are God's scales weighed differently? Well, Jesus gives the answer. In verse 44, he says, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, had put in everything she had, all she had to live on. In other words, the way God sees things is different from man's. For us, we measure our giving by how much we give. But for God, he measures how much we sacrifice. For us, we look at the total amount we give. For God, he looks at the total cost to give. 
He looks at how much it costs us. That's how he weighs our offering. For the wealthy, sure, the amount they give was a lot, but it costs them nothing to give that amount. For the widow, the amount she gave was extremely tiny, but it cost her dearly to give that amount. Let's be honest. For many of us here, when we give, we tend to give out of our margins. We tend to give out of our abundance. We take care of all of our needs. But out of the surplus, we'll give to the Lord. For our giving doesn't impact where we eat or how much we eat. How much we give does not impact our ability to buy the clothes we want to buy or buy the gadgets we want to buy. Our giving doesn't really impinge on our lifestyle. But for the widow, her gift, her offering does impact where she eats, where she lives, how she's going to survive. And that's Jesus' point. You see... When the widow gave, Jesus uses a very interesting word to describe her offering. In the Greek, Jesus says that the woman gave her bios. Now, what does bios mean? Well, if you studied biology, you know that bios means life. This is why it catches Jesus' eye. While everyone else gave their money to God, the widow gave her life to God. Because she gave everything, she was ultimately giving her life. And when you think about it, she was also giving up control. Isn't that the reason why you and I struggle to give more than we do? If we give out of our surplus, we're still in control. But the more we give, the more it encroaches on our needs and wants, the more we're giving up that control and unto the Lord. Now, let me ask you, when a child tells her parents, a three-year-old child, mom, dad, I will listen to you but I'll only listen to the things I want to do. Who's in control? Who's the authority? Is it not ultimately the child? When we tell God, God, yeah, I'll give to you as much as I want to give, but I won't give as much as you command. Who's in control? It's us. And so we struggle with giving because ultimately, it's really not about math, is it? It's about our hearts. It's about our desire to be and remain in control. And that's what Jesus is getting at. You see, Jesus makes a point to talk about this widow because through this widow, what he ultimately sees is a picture of discipleship. 
He's a, he sees a picture of what it means to follow after God. When we come to him in saving faith, God invites us to surrender control to him. God invites us to say, I want to be not just your savior, but also your Lord, your master in every aspect of your life. I don't just want your money. I want your bios, your heart, your life. To follow Jesus is a whole soul movement where we go from where we are to where he is, where we let him lead and we follow. That's what a disciple does, is follow our leader, Jesus. Going back to my roller coaster analogy story. Why did I have such a horrible experience? It's because I lacked trust. If I truly trusted the ride and the roller coaster, my hands would have been in the air, my legs would have been dangling freely, and I would have been screaming in joy like my kids. But I didn't trust the ride to keep me safe, evidenced by the fact of how tightly I held on to the ride. And because of that, I was afraid and scared and miserable. My kids, on the other hand, they were not scared of flying off. Because they trusted, they were able to enjoy the ride. And in seeing the stark difference in experience, I can't help but see a metaphor for our faith where so many of us trust Jesus enough to give him ourselves when it comes to heaven and eternity. We trust him with our afterlife, but how many of us struggle to trust him with our life right now? We say, Lord, we trust you to, to save me for eternity, but in my life right now, before I die, I don't know, Lord, if I trust you. I don't know if I believe you have my best interests at heart. I don't know if I can surrender all of my finances. I don't know if I'm willing to relinquish all of my relationships. You see, I will love these people, but I won't love these people. You asking me to do that, that's way too scary. And so I'm going to hold off. I will do this with my time. I will give you this much, this many minutes, this many hours for the church and for your kingdom. But all the rest, Lord, that's for me. You ask anything more and I don't know about that. I need to be in control. We say yes to Jesus in certain places, and yet we say no to him in others. And so we're like the scared roller coaster rider. We're unable to fully enjoy what it means to follow God 
and step in his ways because we're too scared to let go and we're holding on and we're holding back. If only we could learn to trust God completely and obey God completely, I wonder if then we would experience the joy and the deep life that he promises us. And so the question remains, how do we develop trust in the Lord? How can we see and be convinced that indeed our God is trustworthy, that we can embrace him and say, anything you ask, O Lord, I will do. I know it's for my good. I know it's for your glory. Well, the answer is the gospel. A fresh and deep grasp of the gospel will help us to trust him more. I love what Tim Keller says here. He says, while the widow, as wonderful as she was, as brave as she was, was only figuratively giving her life away, Jesus literally gave his life away. I wonder if the reason why Jesus is stunned by this widow is because in the widow, he sees a picture of himself. You see, a pivotal moment in Jesus' life was his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a pivotal moment because I think in that prayer, Jesus knows that ultimately he is about to give up total control of his life. Not my will, but your will be done. And from that moment, he's relinquishing control and submitting himself to the will of the people. He surrenders his sense of justice as he allows Pilate, as he allows the Sanhedrin to pronounce unjust accusations and condemn him for things he is not guilty of. He surrenders his justice to, to his father. Jesus, the most beautiful being in all the universe, surrenders his dignity as he allows the Roman soldiers to strip him, to beat him, to spit in his face, to mock him, to put a, a cloak around him and kneel before him in jest. And he gives that up to the Lord. He surrenders and gives up control over his body as he is nailed to a cross, unable to move. He even surrenders his garments as the soldiers fight for the spoils and divide up his robes. As you can see, for Jesus, he would do more than just empty his pockets he would empty his soul for us so that you and I would be forgiven, so that you and I would be redeemed, so that our sins would no longer be held against us, so that the punishment of our sin would fall on him. And this is the God that invites us 
to trust in him. He is a God of infinite power and beauty and breath-defying sacrifice. There's no one more dependable and more worthy of our devotion than him. I'll close with a story shared by Dr. Phil Riken. Uh, apparently, when you go to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, there's a small memorial in the lobby of Machen Hall. In that memorial is a framed notice. It reads, Fanny Mulder was called to glory on October 20th, 1987. In a letter from her attorney, we learned that she had only the following personal property in her possession when she died, having been on Title 19 for the last few years. And the notice then lists all of her possessions. She had six robes, two sweaters, 13 adult diapers, 19 hospital gowns, one pair of slippers, five pairs of socks, plus two singles. She also had some personal items, a purse, a mirror, an old thimble, a toothbrush, a comb, some soap, some powder bottles, and a pair of reading glasses. She had two copies of the Bible and a psalter for singing. Fanny Mulder had her lawyer list every single item. In addition to her possessions, she had some money. She had 12 cents, a dime and two pennies. And in her will, she asked that the seminary would receive the 12 cents. You see, for Fanny, she wanted everything she had to glorify God. And so in Machen Hall is the frame of the dime and two pennies. Brothers and sisters, is there an area of your life that you're holding back from the Lord? Are there things in your heart where you say, God, I will give, but I won't give. Perhaps you're willing to say, Lord, I will give you my external behavior, but my thoughts, those are my own. They are gonna run rampant. Or perhaps you say to the Lord, Lord, I will give you my conduct in the office. I will represent you faithfully. But the moment you step home, you, complete, you turn into someone completely else. Or perhaps it's the vice versa. Lord, I want to be a Christian when it comes to my family. But when it comes to my work, I'm sorry, I have to become a different person. When it comes to your finances, are there ways you are saying, Lord, this is mine and I'll only give you this? May the story of the widow point us to the story of the cross. And as we meditate on the cross, as we see how Jesus held nothing back to secure our salvation, may that then stir us like the widow, like Fanny, to give everything we have unto the Lord and to hold nothing back from him 
and enjoy the ride um, and, and to trust him and follow him. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you and thank you that you are a God who held nothing back from us. You sent your son and you gave your all so that we who deserved nothing but judgment might receive your love and grace. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to trust you. Help us to see that you are worthy of our trust, worthy of our complete and total devotion, so that our words, our actions, and thoughts, so that everything we have and everything we are would be a reflection that we belong to God, soli Deo Gloria. Lord, that is our aim, that is our prayer. We confess that it's hard, and we pray, Lord, that the gospel would sink more and more into our hearts so that our hands will let go more and more of this world and hold more and more onto you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.